today's reading is from Ruth chapter 4, which can be found on page 269 of the Church Bibles. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has, sorry, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one, property, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marvon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and his, who, is even bet, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenab. Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Thank you so much, Charity, and thank you, well done for those names. Uh, never easy when you're reading um, those names publicly, but you did very well. Uh, will you please join me uh, in prayer as we come to look at this uh, passage together? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for this book that we've been studying together over these last weeks. 
And we pray, Lord, that you'll meet with us afresh this morning in this particular passage, that you'll speak to us and teach us, and that you will reveal to us the Lord Jesus, our great Redeemer. Please may we meet with him, have an encounter with him, and may our faith be strengthened for his glory, we pray. Amen. Most of us enjoy a story with a happy ending, don't we? I certainly do. So in a, in a superhero film, I want the hero to win and his evil arch enemy to be thoroughly defeated. In a crime drama, I want the criminals to be caught, arrested and convicted. Uh, in the BBC's Traitor series, I want the lying, deceiving, murdering traitors to be exposed and banished so that the faithfuls get to share the prize money. In a love story, well, of course... I want the couple to marry and to live happily ever after. And when an author or director tries to be clever and leaves things unresolved, well, I'm left feeling frustrated and dissatisfied. Well, if you too enjoy happy endings, you will love Ruth chapter 4. But like all good dramas, we find suspense and plot twists and surprises even in this final chapter. And as we'll see, although there is very much a happy ending... In reality, it's not the ending of the story at all. Not in a frustrating kind of way, rather in a looking forward with excitement, longing for more kind of way. The narrator wants to leave us on the edge of our seats, confident that there is a brilliant sequel to come. He wants us to feel a certain sense of dissatisfaction too, because as it turns out, the book of Ruth is only the prequel to an infinitely greater love story. The best is yet to be. Indeed, the marriage of Boaz and Ruth, as with any marriage between a man and a woman today, points us to a much more significant marriage, to an eternal marriage, where the bridegroom is Christ Jesus and the bride is his church, a people redeemed from every nation, race, tribe, and tongue. And so with that in mind, as we look at the redemption of Ruth and Naomi in chapter 4 and the marriage of Boaz to Ruth, we're going to focus on how this account points us to the greater redemption of Christ and to the wedding supper of the Lamb, to which all who trust in Jesus are invited, whatever nationality or background, single, married, widowed, or divorced. Last week, our focus was on Jesus, the Redeemer, or Rescuer. This week, it's much more on the nature of his redemption, the nature of his rescue mission. Now, chapter 4 opens with the words, Meanwhile, Boaz, which of course links the next part of the account back uh, with the end of chapter 3. So I think a quick recap of the story so far might be helpful if you wanted in uh, uh, Netflix terms previously on Ruth the Moabite. In the days when the judges ruled, when everyone did as they saw fit, there was famine in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Elimelech took his uh, wife, Naomi, and their two sons to Moab. Elimelech died. His two sons married Moabite women, one of whom was Ruth. And then his two sons died too. So Naomi returned to Bethlehem with Ruth, both now poverty-stricken widows with no one to support or help them. Uh, Ruth goes out to glean for food and just happened to end up in the field of Boaz, one of her family's kinsmen redeemers. Boaz protected her lavishly provided for her, sending her home with bountiful provisions. And then, as we saw last week in chapter 3, with the help of matchmaker Naomi, Ruth manages to engineer a marriage proposal from Boaz, albeit a conditional one. And we left Naomi and Ruth at the end of chapter 3 in a state of suspense. Wait, my daughter, says Naomi, 
until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And Naomi's confidence in the determination of Boaz proves to be well-founded. Uh, his name in Hebrew can mean swiftness or speed. And he's certainly not hanging around waiting, is he? Chapter 4, verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, would you believe it, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Now again, as so often with the book of Ruth, we're meant to be thinking, well, what are the chances? Boaz just happens to sit down at the town gate. That's the place where business transactions were concluded. Just happens to sit there at the precise moment that this other guardian redeemer just happens to turn up. Well, that's a strange coincidence, isn't it? What amazing luck. But no, it's another wonderful providence of God. The God who is working out his plans and purposes in and through Ruth and Naomi's lives and in big picture terms ruling over every single circumstance to prepare the way for the greatest redeemer of all who will come hundreds of years later. Every detail is under his control in the same way that every detail of your life and mine is under the Lord's control as he works out his purposes for our lives and through us in the lives of others. So don't be surprised when you just happen to bump into that person you've been praying for in town. Don't be surprised when you just happen to live or to work or study next door to somebody who just happens to relate to your particular story of how you came to faith. We heard this morning, did we, a wonderful testimony from Vic who just happened to go into the bank at a time when the, the, the director of the bank just happened to be there and just happened to have heard him preaching and just happened to give him the money he needed to go and see uh, his, uh, his relative. It's an amazing story, incredible story. You see, in a world where God rules providentially, nothing just happens. I think this is one of the many things that makes being a Christian really exciting. Even perhaps when my daily life seems quite ordinary, routine, insignificant. Proverbs 16 verse 9, in their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19 verse 21, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Well, let's look at some of the detail of this chapter. I want to draw out three timeless truths about Christian redemption from chapter 4. First, notice that redemption is costly. Redemption is costly. Uh, the legal details of this uh, kinsman redeemer described in the first part of chapter 4 are uh, rather alien to us today. But as Boaz invites this rival redeemer to sit down and calls ten of the town elders as witnesses... Uh, verse 2, it helps to understand, I think, that behind this strange drama lie two particular pieces of Old Testament legislation. Uh, first, the law of redemption of property in Leviticus 25, which I'm sure all of you took my advice to read as homework a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, but just in case there are one or two who didn't, essentially, it's all about helping out relatives in financial distress. So someone in serious debt might sell their family land, their property, maybe even themselves into slavery, and their kinsman redeemer, a close relative, had to buy back that land, release them from slavery, so that their property remained in the family name. That was really important. 
Uh, the other piece of legislation in the background here is leveret marriage in Deuteronomy 25. Again, that can be this week's homework if you'd like to. If you don't want to do it, let me just say, levia being the word Lat- in Latin for a husband's brother. So basically, if a husband died and had a surviving brother, that brother was then expected to marry the widow and have a child with her to preserve the family line. Now, that is a huge simplification of two rather complex Old Testament laws, but I think it's enough for us just to get a sense of what is happening here. And for the purposes of the storyline in Ruth, these laws create a dramatic plot twist, another moment of suspense that risks ruining this plan of Boaz to marry and to redeem Ruth. And so Boaz outlines the situation to this other potential redeemer who's a closer relative than he is. He explains that Naomi's dead husband's land is now on the market. Uh, No right move or fox and sons back then. So instead, verse 4, I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it. And the narrator, I think, wants us to be thinking at this point, no, don't do it. We want our happy ending. We want Boaz to redeem it. But then shock horror... End of verse 4, he says, I will redeem it. And if we were watching this at the showcase cinema, you can almost imagine a sharp intake of breath at screen three. (gasps) No, that's not what we want. Although to the careful observer, there is a little clue in these opening few verses that we needn't be too concerned. Because do you remember how names are important in Hebrew literature? How they have meanings? Well, what's the name of this other guardian redeemer did you notice as the passage was read have a a look again what was his name you'll struggle to find it because we don't know he's anonymous which I think is a bit surprising for such a key player in the drama all the other main characters are named but not this one he's an unnamed guardian redeemer even Boaz his own relative doesn't address him by name he calls him you notice my friend which I think suggests that perhaps he's not going to be all that significant in the great scheme of things. And if we miss the clue, well, our fears are soon set aside in verse 5. Boaz plays his trump card. It's like an ancient equivalent of the warning to always read the small print in a contract. You know, if you don't pay back this loan, we can take your, your house and your children and your vital organs and your cats and so on. So verse 5, here's the small print. On the day you buy the land from Naomi... You also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Well, suddenly the deal doesn't look quite so attractive. Let me tell you where I am, he says. At this, verse 6, the guardian redeemer said, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. For that reason, I'm out. And back in the showcase cinema, there's a huge sigh of relief, even perhaps a cheer from the audience. Danger averted. We're right back on track for our happy ending. Now, it seems to me that we are meant to compare and contrast Boaz with this unnamed redeemer. Remember how back in chapter 2, Boaz shows such concern and compassion for Ruth and her mother-in-law. He protects Ruth and lavishes generous provisions on her. Clearly, he's driven by love for and commitment to her by desire to do the right thing by her, including, as we saw last week, protecting her reputation as an honorable woman. He goes beyond the requirements of the law by lavishing grace upon grace on her, no matter what the cost to himself. But you see, this unnamed redeemer seems to be driven by self-interest, doesn't he? 
by concern for his own estate and who's going to inherit it. Because, of course, if he were to marry Ruth and have a son with her, well, that son would legally become entitled to part of the estate, become an heir, which would have a negative impact on his existing beneficiaries, whoever they are. A fear of endangering his own estate drives his decision not to redeem Ruth. Redemption is costly. And this anonymous redeemer is evidently not willing to pay the price. Unlike Boaz, he doesn't care for Ruth in her hour of need. He's only concerned for himself and his immediate family and is not prepared to suffer any loss. Well, what a contrast to Jesus, our Redeemer, who was willing to lay down his very life in order to redeem you and me. Redemption is costly. Apostle Peter puts it like this, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And if the Lord Jesus laid down his very life, if he shed his blood in order to redeem me, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for you and for me, well, Surely he can be trusted. Having done that greater thing, surely he can be trusted with every little detail of our lives to provide for me until my redemption is complete and I receive my internal inheritance. Eternal inheritance. Surely I can trust him with my health, my finances, my career, my housing, my marriage, my children, my aging parents, my desire to find a husband or wife. I can trust him with absolutely everything. Redemption is costly. And secondly, redemption is permanent. Uh, removing a sandal to seal the deal in verse 8 uh, seems a bit odd to us, doesn't it? To say the least. In fact, it was uh, obviously unfamiliar even to the Israelites when the account was first written. Do you notice that? In verse 7, the narrator has to explain to them that this is how transactions used to be legalized in a former time. Uh, I guess offering an item of footwear is cheaper than paying a solicitor. Um, that said, having said that, I read this week that apparently Sotheby's Auction House have recently sold uh, a pair of trainers from Michael Jordan, uh, the NBA champion, basketball champion, for around $8 million. $8 million for a pair of trainers? The world's gone mad. But let's assume that the footwear in Ruth 4 is more like, a, I don't know, a Primark sandal or something like that. It's left to our imagination whether Boaz keeps the single sandal or hands it back. Perhaps he files the sandal under S as proof of the transaction and just leaves the unnamed redeemer to hobble back with one bare foot. We don't know. I, I can't help but getting interested in these kinds of details. Uh, and yes, I probably do need to get out more. What's important though, what's important is that this, mean, that this is the means by which you notice verse 7, the redemption and transaction of property become final. That's the point. This is the proof that it's a genuine transaction. But more than that, in case you missed it, and you may have done, did you notice Boaz and Ruth are now married? Verse 9, then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people today, your witnesses, that I've bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's wife, as my wife. Now, if this were a Hollywood movie, we might feel a bit disappointed. I mean, hold on, aren't you going to tell us about the wedding? I mean, what was Ruth's dress like? 
How did she get to the church? Was it by, by a sort of you know, horse and cart? Was it by a Bentley? Uh, how many bridesmaids were there? Where was the reception? Where did they get their sort of wedding list? Was it M&S? Was it John Lewis? We just don't know any details. A bit disappointing. But you know, the Bible actually has very little to say about wedding ceremonies and much more to say about the importance and permanence of marriage. And so notice the emphasis in Ruth 4 is on the witnesses. Three times the narrator records them, either being spoken to or speaking. Today you are witnesses, says Boaz, verse 9. Again, end of verse 10, today you are witnesses. Verse 11, we are witnesses. Now remember, repetition is never accidental in Hebrew literature. It's the author's way of underlining something or putting something in bold. As the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And interestingly, with marriage, that is a requirement that has endured down through the ages. Still today, you cannot be legally married, at least not here in the UK, unless it's done in the presence of witnesses who must then sign the marriage register. And witnesses are so important because the Bible views marriage as a lifelong, selfless commitment based on unbreakable promises. It is a legal transaction, yes, but more than that, it takes place in the presence of the covenant-keeping, faithful God who himself designed marriage. Now, I know that sadly, for some here, permanence has not been your personal experience of marriage. You've experienced the pain and heartache of separation or divorce. For others, marriage has been cut short by the death of a spouse. And those are tragic reminders that we don't live in a world of perfect permanence. But it doesn't change God's original intention and plan and design for marriage to be permanent. And imperfect, temporary human marriages should actually help drive us to the guaranteed permanence of Christian redemption and to the unfailing covenant faithfulness of Jesus, our Redeemer. Like a human marriage, our relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is based on promises, but fortunately not our promises, which we often fail to keep, don't we? But rather based entirely on his promises, which are never broken. And if you're ever tempted to doubt the faithfulness and patience and absolute commitment of our Redeemer to his often unfaithful people, I would encourage you Take a read of the prophecy of Hosea. You'll see his commitment to an often unfaithful people. Or remind yourself what Jesus says. Whoever believes in the Son has, present tense, eternal life. John 3, 36. John 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Listen to this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Permanence guaranteed by the double iron grip of Father and Son. This is what sets the Christian gospel apart from every other religion in the world. With other religions, it's all about what I do for God and for others. It's all about my effort, my performance. But the Christian gospel uniquely is all about what God has done for me in and through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. It's all about his flawless performance 
in perfectly obeying God's law. It's all about his strenuous effort dying on the cross to deal with my sin and reconcile me to a holy God. Before we move on, look at the wonderful blessing heaped upon the newlyweds in verses 11 and 12. May the Lord make the woman who's coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Why them? Well, because they bore many children to Jacob, expanding the family of God, continuing to fulfill that original promise to Abraham back in Genesis that he would have countless descendants. Just as an aside, I want you to notice how inclusive the promise is. Even those with questionable reputations and dodgy backgrounds get an honorable mention. Did you notice Tamar gets mentioned in verse 12? Remember Tamar? She disguised herself as a prostitute in order to trick her own father-in-law into sleeping with her in order to preserve the family line. We might expect the narrator would want to sweep that story right under the carpet, but no. And even godly Boaz. Do you know that he was a descendant of the prostitute Rahab? But you see, there's only one perfect hero in the Bible, and that is the Lord Jesus. And our gracious God is always pleased to use weak and imperfect people to bring about his eternal purposes. So a word to the struggler this morning, from a fellow struggler. If much of your life and ministry has been marked out by weakness or failure or mistakes or missed opportunities, can I encourage you to remember this morning that God is the expert in using flawed people to build his kingdom. Don't have to wait until you're perfect before you can be useful to God. He delights to use imperfect people because he then gets all the glory. His power is made perfect in human weakness. But the key point in verses 11 and 12 is that through one redeemer come many children. And that promise continues to be fulfilled today. Every time somebody hears and responds to the gospel of Jesus, they too become permanent members of the ever-expending family of the promise-keeping God. One redeemer, many offspring. Redemption is costly. Redemption is permanent. And then finally and briefly, redemption is now and not yet. After Boaz takes Ruth to become his lawful wedded wife, verse 15, he made love to her. The Lord enabled her to conceive. See, once again, how God is in complete control over every detail, even over conception. And she gave birth to a son. Uh, note the order there, too. Marriage first, then love baking. And that is not because God is a killjoy, but simply because that is how our loving creator has designed sexual intimacy to be enjoyed within the boundary of a lifelong permanent covenant relationship. But the main point I want to focus on as we close is a final little surprise in the narrative. And it concerns the identity of the Redeemer. If I were to ask you for the name of the Redeemer in the book of Ruth, I wonder what you would say. I think most of us would probably say, Boaz. And you'd be absolutely right. Boaz redeems Ruth. But here's a question for you. Who redeems Naomi? Because listen to what the women say to Naomi in verse 14. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. And we're thinking perhaps, yeah, praise God. What a great redeemer Boaz is. But then look at the middle of verse 15. 
For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Oh, so Boaz is not Naomi's redeemer. Her grandchild is her redeemer. That's a bit odd, isn't it? And as Naomi takes the child in her arms, verse 16, and cares for him, we can't help but wondering, well, how can this powerless tiny baby be Naomi's redeemer? What a strange idea. How can a defenseless baby boy born in Bethlehem rescue anyone? How can he possibly renew life and sustain Naomi in her old age? But then we might think forward to another occasion recorded for us in Luke 2, when in the temple, remember a man called Simeon? takes another child born in Bethlehem in his arms and praises God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of the nations. It's all about preparation, you see. And we learn in verse 17 that they name this baby Obed which means servant of God. And again, with our New Testament reading classes on, hopefully things become clearer. It all points us forward. Naomi has her redeemer. She holds him in her arms. But she must wait for him to grow up before this servant of God will be able to fully renew her life and sustain her in her old age. True, Naomi is no longer empty. She has redemption. But she's not yet completely and fully satisfied. Her full redemption is still to come. Redemption is now, and it's not yet. And in a similar way, we have our Redeemer, a direct descendant of Naomi's Redeemer, Obed. Obed's name appears in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew's and Luke's Gospels, right down through to to David, who's included in there. David, of course, is Israel's greater king, but pointing to Jesus. And if I'm trusting in Jesus this morning, the ultimate servant of God, then I have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. It's past tense. It's already happened. It was costly. It is permanent. But like Naomi, my redemption is now and not yet. So yes, it's happened. It's happening now, but it's still to happen in full. The best is yet to be. And that means that I mustn't expect now in full all the blessings of redemption that the Bible only ever promises in full in the future. For now, I should expect there to be times of sadness, loneliness, struggle, bitterness, grief, suffering, albeit in God's goodness with little foretaste of the complete joy, fullness, and satisfaction to come. It's my experience that there are a number of Christians suffering today with what's called technically an over-realized eschatology. I bet that's a phrase you don't hear very often. It may sound like something you go to your doctor with. Oh, doctor, I've got an overreal eschatology. Please, can I have a cream or some pills? It's not actually a physical problem. It's a spiritual problem. Eschatology is to do with the end times. If our view of the end times is overrealized, it means that we're expecting in full now promises that God only ever promises in full in the future. You know, when times are really hard in this present world, and I might feel like giving up on church or giving up on faith or giving up on life itself, I can be confident that the hidden kindness of my Redeemer is always at work for his glory and for my ultimate good. And that means that if I'm trusting in Jesus, I will make it to the wedding supper of the Lamb where Jesus, the bridegroom, will wipe away every tear 
and ensure that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For on that day, the old order of things will have fully passed away.